This morning, um, before we get into our series, I'm hoping in October when our life groups form to begin a series uh, in Matthew, and uh, we'll be going through the uh, Gospel of Matthew for some length of time. I don't know how long, and we'll focus, we'll slow down and focus on different areas uh, like the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. Um, But before we get there, I I just wanted to sort of open up the season um, talking about the value of the Word of God. And if you were to look at our our logo, the the byline of the church is standing on the Word of God. And that is not by accident. It's a fundamental value of Protestant Christianity, of, of all of Protestant Christianity stands on the belief that the Bible is the Word of God and it's His revelation. And if you take the authority of Scripture away from Christianity, everything begins to fall down. And so as we begin this season with Bible studies and life groups and WOW and men's studies and things like that, I just thought I'd take this morning to just encourage you to consider the placement of the Word of God, the foundation of it, and the centrality of it in our faith and what we owe to it and how we should conform our life to it. If you were to pick the Bible out of the seat back in front of you and open it up, you would find, as try as hard as you can to open it up directly in the middle, the center, the heart, if you will, of the Bible, and you will find Psalm 119. And I think in those pew Bibles, it's page uh, 599 out of 1,200 pages. Um, so it is literally at the center of it. And you'll find the longest psalm written... And it's all written on the importance of the Bible, on the importance of Scripture to the Christian life. And I would even say, if you want to take away sort of one sentence from this message, I would put it as strongly as, as the psalmist does, that our Christian lives depend on delighting in the Word of God. You cannot live the Christian life apart from delight in His Scripture and in His Word. And we'll see that as we get into it, into Psalm 119. It's a delightful duty of the Christian to treasure and to know and to be able to speak of and to just rejoice in the Word of God. Our Christian lives depend on delighting in God's Word. And yet I wonder how much we do actually delight in God's Word. And we'll look at that today in Psalm 119. Let me open up in prayer before we begin. Father God. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would unfold your word to us, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to the reality of your scripture, to the living nature of it, to your personal revelation in it, that we do not worship a book, just a book. We worship you, and that you are your word, and your son is your word, and that is where we find you in your scripture. And so, Lord, just give us open ears and open minds and open hearts to this truth that you teach. In Christ's name, amen. So as an overview, the psalm is written as an acrostic poetry. If you were to look in your Bible, it's actually written alphabetically. Each stanza begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's Aleph and Beth and Gimel and Daleth and etc. for 22 stanzas of eight, eight verses each. So it isn't short. It's about the length of James as one psalm. It's about the length of Philippians as well. But it was written that way in Hebrew to be memorable. 
that it could be more easily memorized, and thus as memorized as a psalm, it would be sort of an encyclopedia of living a godly life and bringing to bear the power and the influence of the Word of God on a believer's life. And so if you are ever wondering where wisdom should come from or where you should turn, you can always open up your Bible directly in the middle to Psalm 119 and read all 22 stanzas and see that it really is that encyclopedia for Christian living, that the Word of God is where we are all called to go at the heart of our faith. And so the psalm is a hymn, essentially. The writer has written it as a hymn to the supreme value of God's word in the life of himself and for all believers. And so as you were to go through, and we're obviously not going to go through all 176 verses of Psalm 119 today, uh, so you can breathe a sigh of relief, we're only going to talk about eight of those 176 verses today. But I just wanted to just paint you a picture of the entire Psalm 119, the entire sort of grand supreme hymn to the value of God's word. First of all, just looking at the names as you go through here that is used for God's word. It's, they are called his statutes. They are called his law. They are called his word, his precepts, his testimonies, his rules, his ways, his commandments, his decrees, his promises. These are all ways in which the psalmist describes the same thing. These are all synonyms for the Word of God. And then we see throughout all 176 verses the descriptions that the psalmist gives to God's Word. They are righteous. They are wondrous. They are life, hope, better than gold and silver, righteous, sure, my delight, broad, a sweeter than honey, a lamp for my feet, a light for my path, a heritage forever, fine gold, right, wonderful, tested, true, forever. This is how he describes God's word. And then the qualities that the psalm raises about God's word, its righteousness, its trustworthiness, its truthfulness, its faithfulness its unchangeableness, its eternality, its illumination, its purity, its wisdom, its value. This psalm goes on for 176 verses to just resound and redound to the value and the delight that the psalmist has in the Word of God. There is no question what this psalm is about and what this hymn is about. And we don't know exactly when it was written, and so we can't say exactly how much of the word or the scripture that the psalmist is referring to, but it's certainly all of the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's probably Job. It's probably Joshua, perhaps Judges, and maybe some others as well. It may have been written by Daniel because it's written by someone like Daniel. He's a young man. He's among enemies. He's surrounded by temptation. He was a student and possessor of God's word. We see in Daniel 9.2 that he was perceiving and reading in the books, and so he had at least Jeremiah with him because that was the book he was reading. And as you read through the psalm, you get some hints that maybe Daniel or somebody like Daniel wrote this hymn to the supremacy of the word of God. And it's foundation or its centrality to his faith. It was certainly a person who's experienced all sorts of testing and trial in their life, along with victory and joy in God. And these stanzas go stanza after stanza after stanza of delighting in the word of God in spite of trials and victory through the word of God and wisdom from the word of God and righteousness. And so if we look at the introduction, just the first five verses as a starting point before we get to the main verses of 9 to 16 I'm going to look at today, 
He says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And we see there in verse 5 the longing that the writer has to live as God would have him live. There is a desire. There is a longing. He says it's a prayer. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That's what he wants. That's his goal. There's a longing. It's a longing fulfilled. And we look at the second stanza which asks and answers that important question. Really the question of the whole psalm is posed in Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? And you can put the question mark after how can a young man keep his way pure or you can put it after the whole sentence. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? In other words, how do, how do I do it? How, how do I use your word to guard my ways? And that's what we will see. And what we also see is that he wants... But the psalmist wants what he longs for is God himself. He says, with my whole heart, in verse 10, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You see, what he's seeking is God himself. What the psalmist wants, what, he, what his desire is for is God. And so to seek God is to stay true to his word, to engage with God's commandments here in Psalm 119.10 is synonymous with seeking and knowing God. And so when you think, well, I want to get to know God, so I'm going to go over here and do some things to get to know God, and then I know I have to read my Bible, so I'm going to read my Bible. The psalmist says, no, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Staying true to the commandments of God is seeking God. They're one and the same thing. You can't divorce them from each other. He seeks with his whole heart, and I can't say that for myself. That's a bold statement. I can't say it about today. I can't say it about yesterday either, right? But it's what I have to do. I have to seek with my whole heart after God. It's a bold claim, but it's in the right direction for sure because we see Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answered to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so this is what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, I seek you with my whole heart, God. And I do it by not wandering from your commandments. And so the psalmist, maybe Daniel, says that this is what he does. He seeks after God with his whole heart. And in these verses, as you go on, you're going to see that his soul and his mind are involved too. But in the very same breath, as he says that he seeks after God, that his heart longs after God, he also asks that God, asks God for the help to make it true. And I don't want us to miss this as you go through this psalm because you'll read this psalm and you'll hear me preach and what will fall on your ears is we have to try really hard to study our Bible and if we have enough gumption on our own then you know we'll try hard enough and if we succeed in reading our Bible and studying it good enough then God will accept us. It's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying he seeks after God with his whole heart but then he says don't let me wander from your commandments. Do you see the change? I'm seeking after you, but God, I need you to take the action. I need you to keep me from wandering from your commandments. My heart seeks after you, so I pray that you don't let me wander. I don't trust my own strength. It's your strength, God. It's your strength that overwhelms my will. It's your strength that constrains my love. And it's through your commandments, it's through your word that that happens. It's through the word of God, through the precepts, through the statutes, through the law. 
And so the psalmist, as Spurgeon puts it, is a believer who exerts himself but does not trust himself. His heart is in the walk with God, but his strength will not keep him right unless his king and his keeper and the one who commands will make him constant in obeying them. And so don't hear that I'm saying you have to try real hard to study your Bible in order to measure up to some form of Christianity. No, you and me are like the psalmist. We say, we seek you, Lord, with our whole heart. You need to keep us. You need to do this. The action has to come from you. We won't do it in our own strength. Every time we think we have it all together and we start to rely on ourselves instead of on God, then we find we are not as steadfast as we thought. And after a few days or a few weeks away from the central presence of God in his word, he starts slipping away from us and we start slipping away from him. And so the psalmist says, I seek you, Lord, keep me in your commandments. And we have to stay in the word of God or he will slip away from us and we will slip away from him. So how does he do it? He treasures and he stores, he learns the word, he declares the word, he delights in the way of the word, he meditates on the word, and he he nurtures delight in the word. And we're going to look at all of these things he does in order to seek after God in his word. Verse 11, the first thing he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He treasures the word of God. And your translation may say that he's hidden it in his heart. And the word is often translated as stored or treasured. And we see the same phrase as we see with Jesus' mother Mary as she heard the words of the angels through the shepherds and the wise men. And she says in Luke 2.19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She stored these things up. She pondered them. She treasured them in her heart. And so the psalmist is saying here that I've made the word of God sacred in my life. It's like the Ten Commandments that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't placed in the Ark of the Covenant to be hidden. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God, were placed in the Ark so that they would be stored and they would be preserved and they would be treasured by the people of God, that they would be preserved for the people of God. And so the psalmist here is saying he doesn't just read the Word of God or just study the Word of God. He hides it. He stores it in his heart. He preserves it because it is so valuable to him. And so we have to ask, are we hiding the word of God in our heart? Are we storing it up? And you can count me in on this too, because, you know, of course I read the Bible. I literally have to. It's my job. (laughs) But there's times, you know, there's times when my tank is empty, right? There's times when I'm at a loss for how to speak or how to act or how to respond or how to find victory in my life. Or I find my love for Jesus is waning. I find that my delight in God is ebbing. And I realize... Of course it is. Of course I don't know. Of course I'm weary. Of course I don't see victory because I have not been treasuring the very thing that keeps me walking close to God. Even in my own life, I find those seasons when I have not been storing it up in my heart. So why would I be surprised that I feel bad or act bad or think bad? Why would I be surprised that there's no depth of wisdom or compassion when I haven't been storing up what is good? when I've been treasuring lesser things that ultimately fail, when I've not put God's word in the ark, but I've put the things of the world in the ark and I've focused the heart of and the centrality of my life on the temporary things of this world that fail, when at the center should have been God's word, when God's word only has a place on the edge of my life, but it's not at the very center, it's not at the heart of my life, then I find I'm wandering from the true path and from God's 
presence. So you can't just have a place on the edge of your heart. You can't just have a place for God's word on the edge of your life. It has to be at the center. That's what the psalmist is saying. He treasured it. He stored it up. If the word is given that central sacred place in our heart, the writer says, then it has this preserving effect on our life. The rest of the the verse ends. It keeps us from sinning. That means that it keeps us from turning away from God. It it turns our hearts towards God. The Word of God aligns our minds to God's mind. And then our life follows our minds and our hearts. I was at a seminar with Brody Haight just yesterday, and he was just talking randomly about things in his life, and one of the many phrases that he said stuck with me to regard the Word in this way. He had came to know Jesus when he was a drug user. He was a male stripper. He was in trouble with the law. He was an abuser. Basically, nothing he said in his life reflected Christ at the beginning. Nothing reflected Christ. And he said with regard to his small group that he joined, who basically discipled him, that they never attacked his sinful lifestyle. He said, and I'm quoting, I think, pretty accurately here because I jotted it down. It was the Holy Spirit that discipled me. As I read the Bible, these things fell off. It was two or three years of things falling off. As I read the Bible, I was sanctified. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That the the Word of God, as you read the Bible, it aligns your mind, it aligns your heart, and it keeps you from sinning. It sanctifies you. So we could paraphrase Ephesians 5.26, that's speaking of husbands to wives, but we could apply it to any of us. We could say, be sanctified, being cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. Or as Jesus says in John 15.3, you are already clean from the word which I have spoken you. The word of God cleans and the word of God sanctifies. And the psalmist knows this and he says, I seek after you and I store your word up at the center of my heart. I treasure it because it keeps me from sin. So are are you hiding the Word of God in your heart or are you hiding from the Word of God? There's a big difference between hiding the Word of God and hiding from the Word of God. The best way to never make any progress in your Christian life is to avoid reading, meditating on, and storing up the Bible in your life. If you want to not make any progress at all, avoid the Bible. If you want to make progress, read the Bible. Meditate upon it. Store it up. William Still, great 20th century pastor and theologian, wrote, gave this advice to his students. He said, keep a sanctuary for the word of God in your heart where no particle of dust is ever allowed to enter. That's what, this, that's what the psalmist is writing here. Maybe it's Daniel. He's just a good example that I keep in mind. He has this sanctuary for the word of God in his heart that nothing enters except God in the presence of the Spirit of Jesus, the Word of God. But then he learns from the Word. So he stores it up, he treasures it, and then he learns from it. Verse 12, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. And so the Word teaches us. And, and most of us, if we're honest, especially before we come to Christ, and even as, even as Christians later on, we don't like this part of Bible study. We don't like this part of meditating on the world because, Word because instinctively we rebel to being taught especially as adults, because it implies that we're either ignorant or wrong, right? I mean, the fact that you're being taught is you don't know or what you know is incorrect. And so we instinctively rebel and we start to think, you know, you can't tell me my ways are wrong or you can't tell me I'm ignorant. There is just in this 
in the concept of being taught a clear humility that we are called to, that comes with being taught. There's an intrinsic hierarchy to teaching that we have to acknowledge. The Word of God is higher than us, and we sit under the Word of God, and we are instructed by it. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, teach me your statutes. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We have to acknowledge when we come to the Scripture that we are not coming as equals. We do not engage with the Word of God as peers. We are not discussing our worldviews and weighing the merits of each of our different views on the world with God. And so many times and far too many times have I been sitting in life groups or Bible studies and they have slid into a group conversation with the Bible and its instruction taking the role of just one participant among many. And everybody's giving their thoughts about what they think about this particular topic or this particular issue or theology or doctrine. And, oh, yes, if the Bible puts up its hand, we'll let it have a turn to talk too. No. We sit under the Scripture. We do not participate as equals with the Word of God. The writer here has no such attitude. He's hungry for the teaching of Scripture. He blesses God. He praises God. He worships and rejoices in the fact that God will teach him. That's how he approaches the Scripture. That's how we must, as believers, approach the Word of God, not as equals, but sitting under it and its teaching. Then the psalmist declares the Word of God. He says, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And so as we fill our hearts up and store the truth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God and the Word of God and His Scripture and His precepts and His statutes and His rules and His laws and His promises and His testimonies, as all of those things get stored up in our heart, then they will just kind of flow out of us as believers. Matthew 12, 34 to 35 says, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. Then he goes on to talk about the evil man. But what is the good that's stored up in us? The good is the word of God. The good is what has been treasured and stored and hidden in our heart and out of the overflow of the heart. Our mouth speaks and the psalmist here says he declares. And if again, if it's Daniel, you go back and read Daniel. Daniel is always speaking the word of God into the lives of his fellow countrymen and even into the lives of kings and emperors. The Bible is so saturated, or Bible-saturated people just have Bible bubbling up out of them. And that strengthens the Word of God in you. There's nothing for affirming the goodness and rightness of God's Word that compares to applying it to someone else's life and speaking the Word of God to them and seeing them respond to it. I mean, that's the drug I'm hooked on, right? (laughs) Like, that's what gets me excited that I speak the word of God that he's poured into me and I see people taking the word of God that's been spoken and declared and seeing people respond to it because they have a new excitement and a new joy and a new hope in the word of God that I've declared. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the delivery man. There is nothing special about me, but the source material is amazing. There is everything right and good and wise about the word of God. And there is nothing like declaring the word of God and seeing people respond to it to just have that cycle back and reinforce in you the goodness and the wisdom and the rightness and the truthfulness of those precepts. And so the psalmist here says, with my lips I declare the rules from your mouth. Notice how very specifically he says this, that the word of God, the rules are from the mouth of God. 
So God is speaking from His mouth into the Word, and then we are taking the Word and speaking from God's mouth through our mouth. We speak what God speaks. So when you do your Bible study, seeking God, and you see Him, and He says to you, here I am in this verse, and here you see me here, and this is a right way, and this is how I speak into this, and this is where you get victory in this place. And then you go and you take what you learn in the Scripture and you tell that to someone. That is from God's lips to your lips to their ears. That is speaking the Word of God to them. That's the power of God's Word at work and not returning void. But that won't happen unless you are seeking, unless you are storing up, unless you're being taught yourself, unless God is speaking to you through His Word, you will have nothing godly to say. There's nothing godly that we come up with on our own. Every godly thing we have to say comes from the Word of God. And He teaches it. He delights in it. 14, He says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. And the highlight of this verse is the emphasis that it places on engaging the emotions, or maybe better said, our affections. The writer does not just delight in the word, in the testimonies itself, it says. He says he delights in the way of the word or the lifestyle of the word. He delights in the results or the outcomes of the word. He delights in the pattern of life or the path that the word of God sets him on. So there is a way, right? In the way of your testimonies, I delight. So there is a way or there is a journey or there is a path or there is a pattern of life that comes out of the testimonies, out of the word of God, and he delights in that pattern of life. He delights in having that journey and that path and that lifestyle that flows out of God's word. He delights in that as much as in all riches. As much as he would delight in all the money in the world. Keep your money. Because I delight in this. And again, if this is Daniel, we actually have an example of this. You remember the first time Daniel interprets the dream um, for first one's Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar gives him a gold jewelries and fine clothes and a whole bunch of money and all that stuff. And then later on, like five, six years later, there's the writing on the wall with Balthazar. And he says, I heard you're an interpreter of dreams. Can you come and, and interpret this writing? I'll give you, I'll make you third in command in the nation and up to half my kingdom or something like that. And Daniel literally says to him, you can keep your money, but I'll tell you what God's word says. <laughs> I don't care about your kingdom, but I will gladly share with you what God has to say. And as it turns out, your kingdom's actually not worth all that much once I get done interpreting this for you. (laughs) So maybe Daniel knew what he was doing. Keep your money. It's not really yours. You're going to lose it. But this is what he he delights in. More More than all the riches in the world, he delights in the path or the pattern of life that comes out of God's word. You treasure what you love, and the young man or woman or any person who is a seeker after God, remember how this started, or a lover of God, is a delighter in and a lover of God's word and the way or the direction that it leads. We don't read God's word and say, yeah, that's not a very good advice, or I'm not sure whether God's on the right track there. Right? You don't do that. If you love God, you read his word, and you delight in where it leads you. Right? If, if I find myself at any time disagreeing with God's word, the problem is not with God, it's with me. 
But here's what you discover. As you store up God's word in your heart, as you treasure it, as you are taught by it, you get to a point where none of it isn't delightful. Even the hard parts are delightful. Even the parts like Tamar and her abusive family that we talked about a few weeks ago in the summer. You you delight even in those difficult things, even in Job, because you delight in the honesty and purity and wisdom of God to teach us even and especially about the hardest things in our way, in our journey, in our pattern of life. Bible study is not academic and cerebral and stodgy. The more intensive the study, I assure you, the greater affection and delight and even emotion it stirs up. When God unfolds a new truth to you in a text that you have read a hundred times before and he speaks straight from his mind to your mind, your heart will be thrilled. Your affection will literally be delight. And that's why the psalmist just keeps coming back to this word of treasuring and delight. Delight, delight, delight. It's why I said at the beginning that your Christian life depends on your delighting in God's word. And you'll delight in the life that results from knowing his word. The psalmist here basically says, I love the way you work in my life through your word. I love the way that your word changes me. I I love that the change isn't coming from me, that the change is in spite of me, that the change is coming as I conform to your word, that I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's what the psalmist is delighting in. As much as all riches, he, he doesn't want any of the million dollars if it means losing God's continuous work in his life. He would much rather have God continue to work in his life through the word than to have all the riches. He'd never trade any riches to say, well, you can have all of this, but God has to stop working in your life. Yeah, no. Never going to trade it, the psalmist says. Then he meditates on the word. He says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. If you want to stay pure and delight in the ways of God, then you need to meditate and fix or focus on his ways you turn the word of god over and over in your mind and and you lock your eyes on the path for his path for your life this is meditation that's filling your mind not emptying it this is setting your eyes on what is light not what is dark psalm 119 105 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path it's replacing lies with truth it's replacing false identity with true identity it's replacing crooked paths with straight paths that's what this meditation is it's it's filling up your mind and your soul with the Word of God. Most of us would confess that we find it difficult to concentrate for five solid minutes on the glories of Jesus, right? Just just try for five minutes to concentrate just solely on, on one piece of Scripture. So how can we learn to do that? He answered, as Sinclair Ferguson phrases it, this is not emptying our mind in transcendental meditation, it's filling our minds in biblical meditation. You fill your mind with the word of God, you fill your mind with scripture. So the psalmist says here, if I fill my mind with you and with your word, then I'll start to think and act biblically, and and you'll see the transforming result of it. His eyes get fixed on the ways or the pattern of life of God. And and the inverse is also true. If I'm not thinking and not acting biblically, if I don't see any of the patterns of God in my life, it's probably because I don't have my mind filled with the precepts of God's word. I dare you to try to find somebody whose mind is filled with and stored up at the heart of with God's word and they're somehow living an unbiblical life. Conversely, if you find somebody who's living a very unbiblical and ungodly life, I can virtually guarantee you that they have not meditated on God's word any time recently. This is the power of it in our life. 
Again, it's why I said at the beginning that our Christian lives depend on delighting in God's word. Then he says in verse 16, last verse, this is an important one. They're all important, but this is a good one. He nurtures delight in the word. He says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And you stop and you say, well, Paul, didn't, didn't he already talk about delighting and treasuring the word? Yeah, he did earlier. But the grammar is changed in this sentence. It's a little bit different. The, the will statement here is important. The structure of this sentence is such that the writer is saying this, I choose to delight in your statutes. It isn't like two verses before where he says, I do delight or I get delight from your statutes or from your testimony. He's not talking about getting delight. He's talking about his declaration of how he will choose to delight in the statutes and in the word and in the precepts and in the testimonies of God. He's saying, I'm going to nurture delight in your statutes and in your commandments. Anyone with any kind of relationship, and remember that this all started with this psalmist wanting to have a relationship with God. Right? This is not about him wanting to do Bible study. This is about him wanting to know God. And anyone in any kind of relationship, any kind of committed relationship will recognize this phase of the relationship. There comes a time where we decide who we love and if we're going to pursue that love or nurture that love. It may surprise you that in high school and university that I had other options besides just Wendy. (laughs) And she had other options too besides me. Now, I'm not being totally unromantic when I tell you that especially later on in our relationship as we approached marriage and even in our marriage, we made at various points in time, consciously or subconsciously, decisions to nurture our love for each other rather than our love for anyone else or something else. There was transition points or milestones in our relationship where it just became another choice. It was an easy choice, but it was still a choice to say, I'm, I'm going to nurture my delight in Wendy and not my delight in anyone or anyone else, anything else. I'm not going to nurture delight in hanging out with my friends or I'm not going to nurture my satisfaction or my delight in sports or going to concerts or in technology or computers or whatever was distracting me at the time. There's points in any relationship when you make a choice, I will nurture my delight here and nowhere else. I'll drink at this well not some other. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. That's what this verse is saying. He's saying, I am going to nurture delight in your word. Your word is where I'm going to go for delight. I'm not going to seek my delight or my satisfaction or my direction or the path for my life in TED Talks or website blogs or yoga or keto diets or whatever the flavor of the month the talk shows are pushing. The psalmist is saying, whatever those other things are that are vying for my delight, I'm choosing to delight in your word. I'm going to nurture delight in your word. And I do that, like with any other relationship, by spending time there. It would be a difficult argument to make with Wendy that I am choosing to delight and nurture my love for her and spend all my time on the golf course. She would say, "Mm, I don't believe that you're nurturing your delight in me. I think you're nurturing your delight in golf. But how often do we do that? Do we say that the word of God is the love of our life and that God is the love of our life and then we nurture our delight in everything except him and his word? We don't consciously go to his word and delight in it and seek delight in it. We seek delight in Netflix or whatever. But the psalmist here says, I'm going to nurture 
my delight. I will delight in your statutes. You are where I am going to go for my satisfaction. But just to be clear, if you hear this and you think that this is just some sort of self-effort again, like this is just some sort of call for religious work that you have to do to force yourself to read and enjoy the Bible, remember that the gospel is all through this chapter. Grace is all through this Psalm 119, because just a few verses farther down, look what the psalmist says in prayer again. Psalm 119.36. This is his prayer. After saying that he's going to do this, he says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. (laughs) You see, he comes back and he says it again. He says, you have to do it, God. You have to incline my heart. You have to capture my heart and you have to tip it towards you. You you have to turn it towards you. You've got to do it. I'm praying that you incline my heart towards your word and away from any other selfish thing that I would do, whether it's golf or Netflix or whatever it is. He's saying, I know, I know that I do selfish things, God. I need you to incline me towards you. I need you to draw me to delight in your word. Remember what Spurgeon said, exert yourself, but don't trust yourself. Exert yourself to delight in the word, but trust God to hear your prayer, that he changes your heart and that God enables what he commands. When when God commands us to delight in him and to delight in his word, trust that God enables what he commands. You will delight in his word if you incline yourself towards it because he will turn you towards his word and you will love it. And that's what this whole psalm is about. This whole psalm, all 176 verses of it, what you will find as you read this whole psalm, and I encourage you to do so, is that it links almost every aspect of the Christian life to the Word of God, whether it's sin or suffering or praise or wisdom or opposition or joy, victory or defeat, you name it. The writer says it over and over again in each of these 22 stanzas. If you want the answer, or better yet, if you want God himself, He's found in his word. He's found in his commands. He's found in his decrees. He's found in his promises, in his testimonies. It is a psalm filled with the longing for God, longing for a faithful and upright walk with God, while at the same time trusting that God is the prime mover and motivator. God is the actor who, if we desire it, will enable in us what he commands. He will create in us the delight in him and in his word. And so when you look at our byline, standing on the word of God, It's not just a clever little phrase. We preach the word, we teach the word, we study the word, we talk about the word, we walk in the ways of the word, we obey the word, we conform our leadership and methodologies to the word. Most especially, we delight in the word. If you have have every opportunity at Lakeside, in life groups or in WOW or in men's group, in personal discipleship, on Sunday mornings or in your quiet times, you have every opportunity to be engaged with the word of God. It is right there on your phone. Most of us are five seconds away from the Word of God all the time. We live in a rich time in the culture of humanity to have the Word of God so accessible to us. You can be engaged with the Word of God to know it, to be taught it, to set your heart on it, to delight on it. And if you do that, if you seek after God in His Word with your whole heart, He will Nurture that delight in you so that you love him and love his word and you see where he is found in his word. That's our hope for you. That's why we have standing on the word of God as our byline. Because everything is about the word of God as we seek to align our life and our heart to him. Let's pray. Father God, 
I just pray that we don't miss any opportunity, and I include myself in this prayer, that we do not miss any opportunity to delight in your word. And not just, you know, those verses that are always on the coffee mug or on the poster or cross-stitched and framed on our wall. We know a lot of those verses. But to delight in your whole world, word, to sit down under your word, to be taught your word, to be transformed by it, to meditate upon it, to take a verse and understand everything that is in there, the depth of it, the wisdom of it, the joy of it, the grace of it, the mercy of it. Father, we go to the first sentence in the New Testament. tells us where the Word is found. The Word was with God and the Word was God. It's Jesus. Your Word is eternal made living and active in the life of Jesus, made living and active even in your scripture. We don't just study some dusty words on a page. We're transformed by the living word of God. So Father, I just pray again that we would not miss any opportunity that's presented before us this season to get engaged with each other and engaged under the teaching and the authority and the grace and the mercy and the delight of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.